we are in our teaching series in the book of Philippians. Philippians was a letter written by Paul and a couple of his friends um, to a church that he planted. He was in prison when he wrote it. People argue about where he was in prison. doesn't really matter where he was in prison, but um, he was in prison. And he writes, people call this his letter of joy. His letter of joy. And that's what we're going to see that again today. Writing from prison about joy. All right. We're just going to jump right in. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for you. Thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. Thank you for your spirit who dwells in us and moves us and empowers us. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and minds. Jesus, soften our hearts and minds to what you might have for us this morning. Uh, I ask that you would get me out of your way and that um, my words would become your words. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, this is Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. We're only going to do three verses. Finally, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We, sorry, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So, start at the at the very beginning, right? Well, where are we, Stace? What happened? Very good. All right, verse 1. Some of your translations say further. The translation I read says finally. The word in the original language can be translated either way. When you think about Bible translations, there's a spectrum, right? There's very, very literal translations, and then there's not even translations, paraphrases and loose poetry kind of, kind of stuff. And somewhere in the middle is what, what we teach, right? NI, NIV, that's what, that's what you see up on the screen. And that kind of is a combination of, we want to maintain what the original documents have for us as much as possible, but also make it readable to a modern reader. That's why we have slight differences in things like further and finally. Um, the more literal translations give us finally. And so just think of that as like being at a graduation ceremony, or listening to a sermon and somebody says, in conclusion, and then goes on for another 40 minutes, right? That's, that's kind of what Paul's got for us here. Um, the next thing we see is rejoice in the Lord. This is the seventh time that Paul has brought up joy or rejoice in a four-chapter book, a four-chapter letter. And he's reminding the Philippian church that he is so glad to be with them. He's reminding the Philippian church that God is glad to be with with them and he's doing that to provide them an anchor for what he's about to say to them because he's about to confront them with some hard truth and as we talk about repeatedly right this idea of gratitude anchors us so when the hard things come our way they don't become impossible things without those connections with God first and foremost and with our brothers and sisters the hard things can feel like can become impossible things Right, so Paul is reminding us, rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We need Jesus. Right? Bear one another's burdens. We need each other. That's where Paul is setting, setting the tone for, for what he's about to say. 
He goes on to say, this is no trouble for me. Right? He's about to repeat himself. This is a conversation that apparently at some other time he has had with the people in Philippi. And um, we don't know when it was, but just this is a, this is a reminder. This is a, a repeat performance. And I had a conversation with a friend on Friday about this verse. And um, the, this person was just struck very deeply by Paul's care for the people of Philippi that are communicated in this verse. It's no trouble for me to repeat myself, right? He cares about the Philippians. He cares about the truth. So he, it's, not, it's not a bother. It's not a bother to him. So I want to think about that in our context, right? Let's, um, for those of us who are further eroding along of faith, our goal is to be in a place where we're okay repeating the harder things to those who come and ask us questions, right? We need, that's, that's part of our role, right? If somebody comes to us with a hard question two, three, four times, we're walking with them through it, right? And wrestling with it. If on the other hand, you are in, on the other side of that and you have those questions, I want you to remove the phrase, I don't wanna be a bother from your vocabulary. I would rather you let me or whoever you're asking the question to whoever you think you're bothering, tell you if you're bothering them, right? We're trying to build a community where we can ask each other hard questions and we can have the freedom to both speak and hear no, right? Tom, I got a question. Sure, no problem, what do you got? Tom, I got a question. You know what, I'm swamped. Can we set up some time tomorrow to talk? Or what, whatever that might look like. Right, that's what adult conversations look like. Um, no trouble for me to repeat myself. So this is a reminder of a conversation, like I said, that he's had before. Why is the reminder necessary? There is a, um, a rival missionary team, if you will, on their way, either on their way or already in Philippi. And they're coming with what I'm going to refer to with the message of a false gospel. And that's kind of going to be the crux of what we talk about here in a little bit when we're done recapping what the, all this means. Um, so Paul really wants everybody to be on their guard from what is, what is coming their way. So what is coming their way? Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Goodness gracious. So Paul is calling the bad guys names. And what's really interesting is the names that he is calling them are the names that they call other people. This is a group of people known as the Judaizers. And they, they are Jewish in background. They believe in Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough for them. They think that you need to become Jewish before you can follow Jesus. Specifically, the men need to be circumcised and everybody needs to keep the Sabbath with a whole laundry list of exactly like how many steps you can take on the Sabbath and really nitty-gritty um, detail. So they have added that to the gospel of Jesus. So these guys are, are on their way, and this is Paul starting to turn, by calling them the names that they call everybody else, he's turning, starting to turn everything upside down. Right? He's starting to turn everything upside down. Real quick recap, right? The Old Testament, there was a series of laws, 613 of them. There was a series of rituals, rites, and sacrifices. 
in order for the people to be right with God that they had to perform and maintain. Jesus came and he fulfilled every law. He was the perfect sacrifice. No longer are those things necessary. And this group, the Judaizers, the dogs, the evildoers, they come along and they say, yep, it's still necessary. They're layering, they're layering a burden on top of, of the gospel. Um, so it's, Paul goes on, like, if circumcision, all the rites and stuff, circumcision was one of the primary rites of the Old Testament, no longer necessary. Why does he say we are the circumcision? It seems like a strange thing to come back with, right? Again, he's flipping things on its head. This group, the Judaizers, we read in another New Testament letter of Ephesians, that's what they called themselves. We are the circumcision. That's what they say, as if it's like, you know, a lofty title, a lofty position for, for them, to, um, them to hold. And so it's important to understand that circumcision was an external and symbolic act meant to communicate and symbolize an internal and spiritual truth. Okay? Confused yet? Yeah? Okay. Um, so I invited a friend to help explain this. Um, so Tim Keller is going to talk to us for four minutes about, uh, about, about why circumcision. Stace, can you just hit play on that? Want to do are the same thing. What you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same thing. You know, the best expression of a completely circumcised heart I know is this great little line from a John Newton hymn. Our pleasure and our duty. And here's what it means to have a circumcised heart. When what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same thing. What you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same thing. You know, the best expression of a completely circumcised heart I know is this great little line from a John Newton hymn. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. I love that, and I've, I, can, I can quote that in a lot of situations, but there we have it. Our pleasure and our duty are the same. That's a circumcised heart. That's not just circumcised flesh, circumcised heart. Why couldn't God have asked for a tattoo? I mean, or what is that about? It's gross and bloody. And of course, that's the point. Circumcision is gory, it's gross, it's bloody, it's intimate, it's creepy. It's creepy. You know, I mean, why, why not some other part of the body? It's creepy as a way of trying to show you the penalty of sin. The penalty for sin. Sin is so dire, sin is so intimate, sin is so gross. And now you say, well then, what is this, why do we keep this circumcised heart thing going? Well, 
There's a strange spot in Colossians 2, and I, prom I promise not to talk about baptism right now. There's a great place in Colossians 2 where it literally says, this is Doug Moo's, uh, you know, what he, what he calls a neutral uh, <laughs> translation. In Christ, you, Christians, have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. It's talking about the cross, and it says, Christians, in him, you have been circumcised in the circumcision of Christ. It doesn't just say that when you become a Christian, you get a new heart. You get a circumcised heart. It says you get a circumcised heart because of the circumcision of Christ. What's the circumcision of Christ? And the answer that most theologians, I think, are willing to point to is this, that on the cross, Jesus Christ was experiencing the penalty, the curse of the covenant. What's the curse of the covenant? To be cut off. By the way, you know that that's the curse of every... If you ever wrong somebody, what happens? You get cut off. If you lie, if you cheat, if you wrong people, it, that's always really the penalty to be cut off. But God says that if you disobey me, the penalty is to be cut off from me, to be cut off from life, to be cut off from light, to be cut off from everything. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was getting, you might say, the cosmic experience that we deserve. He was receiving the penalty of sin. Or another way to put it is, in the Garden of Eden, out goes Adam and Eve because of their sin. And who is put at the door? A cherubim with a sword guarding the way to the tree of life, which means the only way back into the tree of life is to go under the sword. And on the cross, Jesus Christ went under the sword. In that sense, he was circumcised. Pretty amazing. Four minutes. He just took you through pretty much the whole Bible um, in an engaging way, right? Yeah. Tim Keller is one of my, one of my heroes. Um, from the beginning, God was not after empty external rights. He was not after good deeds. He was not after, use the word again, empty religion. He's always been after the hearts of women and men. Um, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And then there's various places throughout the Old Testament and the passage in Colossians that Tim Keller was talking about talks about, again, the circumcision from beginning to end, this idea of our hearts being right with God. That's what God has always been after. Um, when we, looking at verse 3, um, we serve God by the Spirit. We serve God by the Spirit. When God has our heart, the Spirit comes and lives in us and empowers us and guides us and directs us and comforts us and convicts us and counsels us so that we might better bear the image of God, which was the original creation mandate. This relationship, this rending of our heart to God 
I, I've been I've been I've read and I've heard that the more terms that a culture or uh, a group of people have for the same thing, the more important it is. And as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking about all the different ways that I've referred to the centrality of the importance of Jesus in our life, right? Jesus should be the central organizing relationship in our life. We should abide in Jesus. We should attach ourselves to Jesus. We want to be in a loving union with Jesus. We want Jesus in the center of our lives. And that's what the, the idea of, of circumcision is all about. So ancient rite, ancient ritual, long time ago, creepy, gross, all of that stuff. Why? Why is it, why is it significant? So what? What does it matter to us? Well, the same, the same reason that it mattered to the Philippians, right? We need to keep the truth of what God is after, the truth of the gospel of Jesus in front of us. And we are under constant pressure from what I would call false gospels. Right, false gospels. The word gospel means good news. So it means pressure from wherever to take something else as good news and to center your life around something else. Before we get that, I just want to give you like a quick um, like synopsis of the gospel. Right? Saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's a great phrase, and it's good to remember that. Um, it's a rough paraphrase of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. But it begs a couple of questions, right? The first one is saved from what? Right? We are saved from sin and death. The, the sin nature of humanity, what Keller was talking about, separates us from God. Jesus' perfect life, his innocent death, his triumphant resurrection, beat that. And when we come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins... We admit we've done wrong and that he can help us. We get the victory that he gained. And then the, oh, go back. The other part, be saved so that we might better fulfill, we might better image God. We were created to rule and reign over the earth with God, like him, through him, for him. Sometimes, um, and Christian circles, it'll just stop at the first part, right? You're saved from sin and death, which is important, right? That's the biggie. <laughs> Our relationship with God, like, can't move forward unless we do it. But that's not the end of it. That empowers us to, to live eternally with Jesus. But that eternity starts now. Dallas Willard is famous for saying that eternal kind of life starts now. So there are um, multiple, multiple, multiple false gospels. I actually Googled false gospels just out of morbid curiosity. <laughs> and I, the, the headlines that came up were, you know, eight false gospels that plague the Western church, five false gospels that you probably believe, three false gospels that your pastor is teaching you. And it's just like pages of, of titles like that. That being said, I'm not going to try to identify specific false gospels, right? Things like a therapeutic gospel or a prosperity gospel or a self-help. I want to look, I'm going to suggest you three different things that I think if you cut away all this stuff, that any one of them could be a root of these false gospels. And the first one is this, Jesus plus. 
right, which is what we get in this text. The Judaizers were saying, you need Jesus plus something. Jesus isn't enough. You, in our context, right, you need to be Jesus and a Democrat. You need to be Jesus and carry a gun. You need to be Jesus and ha have a certain stance on vaccine, whatever it might be. And they're like, this is a really interesting group, right? Because we come from different backgrounds. And some of the plus comes from our own religious traditions. The, the original subtitle of this sermon was Breaking Free of the Power of Religion. Whatever that tradition might be, right? Whether it's you have to be baptized or you have to do X or you have to do Y, like in certain time frames and certain kind of stuff, it waters down Jesus' work on the cross, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and it makes it, um, makes it exhausting, right? Makes it hard. That's the, uh, so a couple different ways that Jesus plus happens. We do it to other people, right? You need to be Jesus and a Republican. You're not a Republican. You're not really following Jesus. Notice I hit both sides of the spectrum there. So I'm just like, <coughs> um, but we also do it to ourselves. I can't tell you guys how many conversations I have with people like, yeah, grace, that's great, right? I get a gift I don't deserve, but you don't know me. You don't know my past. I got too much stuff. Like, there's no way Jesus could, could forgive me. Not even his grace is enough. There's, like, there's something else that the God of the universe who became man and lived a perfect life, there's something else that has to be added to that because my sins are so bad. So th those are kind of the two different ways. We apply Jesus plus to other people. We apply Jesus plus to ourselves. Um, minus Jesus. This one is a little, I don't know, maybe more straightforward. But there are lots of folks who be like, man, I love, I love Jesus' teaching about the poor. I'm all about the poor. But you know what? I'm basically a pretty good person. I don't, I don't need his forgiveness. Or Jesus was a brilliant teacher. I mean, think of all the things that he said, just lessons that thousands of years later people are still trying to apply um but god he's just a dude he's just another great teacher right jesus minus those are their kind of false gospels that um that that hit us and the last one i would suggest to you is no jesus just me i become not tom this is a generic guy I become the center of the universe. I'm the only one who gets to decide what's right, what's wrong, what I do, when I do, how I do it, who I do it with. And if anybody tries to redirect me or suggest a change or encourage transformation, that's offensive and it's borderline hatred. We, um, and right, so I don't know, maybe I've hit a nerve by now, right, in, in one of those. And maybe not intentionally. Maybe you're here this morning and you didn't even know that something like this, like a false gospel exists, like these, these thoughts that we're surrounded by every day. Think about the conversations you have at work or in your neighborhood. Think about the things you see and read and hear. And we're just deluged with this, this stuff. And maybe you're here for the first time and you're hearing that Jesus wants your heart. 
right? The stuff that you're getting pressured to believe, the stuff that you're getting centered, pressured to center your life around is not, uh, it's not what you were created to do. It's not what you were created for. False, following a false gospel. It might feel good for a little bit. Like, yeah, I'm in control. I'm the master of my universe. Nobody can tell me what to do. What happens when the plus to your Jesus plus lets you down? What happens when the plus to your Jesus plus breaks? What happens when, you know, you're minus Jesus, like, you're confronted with something that makes you, like, maybe sin Israel, right? Maybe that horrible headline I just saw on my feed, like, maybe that's an effect of sin. And in a Jesus minus scenario, the weight of that is on you. It's on me. False gospels are exhausting because they place a weight upon us that we were not created to carry. Jesus designed us to be in relationship with him. Jesus designed creation, all of it, with him to be at the middle, with him to do the heavy lifting. And we have a role to play, right? We have a role to play. But when we try to take his job... It's exhausting, it's anxiety-producing, it's stressful, it's just brutal. And those are all signals. Those are all signals that something might be off, right? Something might be like, okay, I need to get back. I need to get back to the gospel. I need to get back to Jesus. So when we, um, when we come before God and we give him our heart, um, when we focus on Jesus and nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, God can take our heart and he can transform it. And he works in us and through us, right, to bring about that eternal kind of life now. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Um, we thank you for the gift of relationship with you. We thank you that, it, that you do the heavy lifting, Jesus, that you created us to be in relationship with you. Jesus, would you open our eyes to the, the things around us that distract us from you? Open our eyes to those false gospels. God, help us to ask the hard questions of ourselves, right? Is this, does what I'm believing, what I'm following, is it, does it come from Scripture? Does it point me to Jesus? Does it strengthen my relationship with Jesus? God, we want to be the people who boast about you, right? We, God, we come before you and we acknowledge, right, that we were created to be in relationship with you for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us. God, would you work in us and through us? In Jesus' name, amen.